This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Up next from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford, Alex Counts, President and CEO of the Grameen Foundation, reflects on the achievements and challenges of microfinance and shares the work and philosophy of 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohammed Yunus from the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Today we're excited to bring you another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation in the Stanford Discussions series. The Center for Social Innovation is a growing community of leaders committed to a just, prosperous, and sustainable world. The Center offers leadership development programs and publishes our award-winning quarterly journal, the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. And now, here's our presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. I'm going to just say a few things by way of introduction and open up to questions. People have questions and curiosities about microcredit, the Nobel Prize, Grameen, the controversies and, and excitements and criticisms of the field and we'll, we can do it that way. But by way of um, just preamble to that discussion, uh, and, and to set, for those of you that don't have a lot of background in microfinance, uh, I've, I'll tell a story that for me sometimes is a light bulb flashing moment for people that are grasping how are you lending to poor people in poor countries, what's that all about? And I, this, the, 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 the light, the moment for me was, when I got into the uh, Houston airport a few months ago to give a talk, and rather than having someone pick me up, I was supposed to jump in a cab, and I realized that I was very low on cash. I didn't have hardly any cash. So I wasn't nervous, uh, and I, but then I realized the cabs didn't take credit cards, so I said, okay, a little nervous. But there was an ATM. ATM was not my bank. My bank doesn't have any uh, branches in Texas, but didn't matter. Stick in your card, put out the cash, on my way. But as I was leaving the ATM, I got a, you know how you get the receipts to tell you what your balance is? Sometimes they're kind of depressing, but anyway, they come out. So they, the balance said, your balance is, colon, negative $9.67. So that told me two things immediately. Number one is that I needed to more quickly submit my expense reimbursements to my CFO. But it told me something else, which is that I had a global banking system linked together that for a fee was willing to meet without even me having to think about it, my liquidity needs. I needed a loan for let's say round up to $10 to get there and, and automatically the world banking system served me for a fee. And I was off on my way to this talk. And I often wonder if I didn't have that uh, and if I needed a little bit more uh, money whether I'd still be in that Houston airport waiting to try to get there or walking through the streets of Houston. So that, and mostly for rich, overeducated people like us, uh, that 
is for our consumption needs. The World Banking System is running around to finance the investment needs of, of companies and entrepreneurs and the consumption needs of the general public. Now, the poor, interestingly, are in a different situation. In fact, they're more in need of a banking system that serves them. Um, and because, in the, in the words of my board chair, the poor where you don't have enough jobs and there's no social safety net, you have two choices. You work for yourself or you starve. It's very stark. So where you work for yourself, where your capital comes from and what you pay for it and how much you have is of enormous importance. And if any of you, if any of you been to the city of Manila, the Philippines, if you ever, uh, a lot of street vendors there, right, doing everything. If you ask a street vendor where they get their capital to buy pro products to sell, they'll say, well, everyone knows where you get it. And then you'll say, well, but tell me, I'm, I'm from somewhere else. They said, you get it from a 5.6. You say, what is a 5.6? I said, everyone knows that too. I said, well, please tell me. 5.6 is where you borrow five pesos in the morning, you pay back six pesos in the evening. That's a 5.6. That's where everyone gets their money. So think about that um, as an opportunity um, that is being met at a very, very high cost by loan sharks. Uh, in the Philippines, and there are versions of this in every country, even here in the United States. So what Dr. Yunus started, what Grameen and the microcredit movement um, um, got going, was to say that's a market opportunity for us to provide finance as conveniently as that loan, as the street vendor gets in Manila, but without the exploitation. Um, but do it as a business. And that basically um, is the, and then let's systematize it so you can do it efficiently and scale it. Uh, and then all the different tricks, doing through groups, lending to the family through the women in the family because they're more responsible with the money and plan better, and all of these things. They're just, but that was the basic code that was cracked, which is that there's a market failure here or market opportunity, uh, and that there's a lot of profit being generated by, these, by poor entrepreneurs. It's being captured by loan sharks in many cases. And we want to d design a banking system that supports them like I was supported in Houston, or at least something approaching that, um, and as a way to move people out of poverty and, uh, rather than enrich loan sharks. That's the basic model. Uh, it's, and, what I was, uh, and yet it's a model that is not, who, if you, people say, who invented it? Dr. Eunice invented microcredit. I don't think so. Um, Microloans from one person to another, family members, has been going out through a history. You know, Cynthia, Subway restaurants, uh, that, has the, that by virtue of their number of outlets, not revenue, is the largest restaurant chain in the world, was started in 1965 with a $1,000 loan to the founder of it, Fred DeLuca, from a distant relative. That was a microloan. What Dr. Yunus did and what he, why he won the Nobel Prize is he systematized it. He McDonald'sized it. He, he did to microcredit what Ray Kroc did to the hamburger. He didn't invent it, but he made it, developed a system so it could be done massively. Now that leads me to um, my second point, and I'll only have one other, uh, is a way to get the conversation going. In 1997, microfinance, depending on how you measure it, was reaching maybe 13 million families, of which half were in Bangladesh. Uh, so the field had a vision of, um, of growing bigger and reaching 100 million of the world's poorest families by the end of 
by the end of uh, 19, 2005, nine years. It was set by civil society, but government signed on. It wasn't one of these UN goals. Uh, people said, some people said that it was an overshooting, a goal that was by, bigger than it was, should have been by half, meaning 50 million would have been more appropriate. Uh, I was one of the ones who argued. I said, you set the very high goal, um, and uh, maybe you fall a little bit short, but you had the bigger aspiration. Well, there's a news conference on November 1st uh, that I'll be speaking at where we release the final numbers for the end of 2005. And I, what I can say, without breaking my agreements with the people releasing the report, is that we came remarkably close to the 100 million goal. Um, and, as a, and we're now setting new goals for 2015, which is that when the Millennium Development Goals um, are, are set for, for reducing poverty in half. And why I think we're at a kind of unique moment um, where I feel very optimistic is we're going to say that the goal of 100 million most likely will be reached a year uh, from a year late. But when you set a goal of increasing by a matter of like 10 times in nine years, financial services for the poor, the forgotten part of humanity, and you almost reach it, it, it reminds me. Uh, it, it opened, and it was done by civil society leading, not governments. Governments participating, but civil society leading. It reminds me of the story about the four-minute mile. Uh, some of you may know that, that when the, there, were, there were, before the four-minute mile was broken, there were actually scholarly studies, medical studies by physicians and um, saying that the four-minute mile was physically impossible for the human body. Could not be done. And you go into the literature, you'll see these. Once it was broke, and so people were trying to break it and prove it wrong, and no one was. When it was finally broken, four other people broke it again within the same next year. Right? So there's this psychological bit barrier that then you get a whole um, literature to, to justify. But once you've broken it, things open up. So on next Wednesday, we'll be announcing almost reaching this extremely bold goal around microcredit, bringing financial services to the world's poorest and also in the wake of the Nobel Peace Prize to, the, um, to one of the key people in the movement, Mohammed Yunus. That makes me feel optimistic uh, as we head into this final 10 years to reach the Millennium Development Goals. Um, and um, uh, and I, hope, uh, I hope it's an optimism that many people share and will share. Uh, I was going to uh, talk about some of the challenges for the field, but let me just, I'll just tick them off, see if they spur a conversation. One is the the cost of microfinance is still too high. I think we need to bring it down. It is coming down, um, but it needs to come down faster. It will have a bigger poverty impact. Uh, the poor are paying for the inefficiency of microfinance, uh, and, I, and, and I think all of us should hope that they have to be bearing less of that sooner uh, going forward. Secondly, big challenge is we need to become much more rigorous around social metrics. What's actually happening to the poor person? When they repay their loan, do they just have almost no surplus left after they repay? Uh, in which case, it's having there's a banking transaction, but there's really not a lot of value being created um, at the borrower level. Or is it playing this transformative role in the borrower's lives and their families and their communities, as we see in some places? We don't yet have the tools uh, to know that, uh, and we can't compare data across institutions like we can in, in the area of financial performance. Uh, where there have been a lot of good industry-wide work to develop common frameworks and metrics and standards and benchmarks. Um, third is, I think, the microfinance infrastructure 
that has been set up now reaching close to 100 million families, half a billion people, could be used for any number of other things beyond providing loans and even financial services. And it can be that infrastructure of people, of relationships, um, of trust, uh, of brand awareness, um, could be leveraged to attack issues of directly, as opposed to only indirectly, issues of health, education, human rights, environment, um, uh, promotion of democracy, among other things. I think it's a very underutilized aspect of this. Although the corporations are, see it, they see it first. They're saying, well, how, can I get my product out through this distribution channel? Um, and, uh, and so, and MFIs are quite rightly driving a very hard bargain where it's what you're doing is promoting consumption as opposed to investment or as opposed to human capital development. Um, but, but using that, what I call thinking of microfinance not as a product but as a platform, um, that is a powerful but, but very underutilized, under-resourced, under-researched, and underdeveloped part of this, the potential. that will only grow, but it, the question is, do we have the imagination to think of it as a platform uh, rather than simply as a product or a series of financial products? Um, so again, the three, the, the three challenges I see, if I, and, and I see a number of others, but just to put on the table for this discussion, uh, is cost, um, is, um, is uh, utilizing it as a platform, and there was one in the middle. Um, social, metrics. social metrics, thank you very much. Okay, so give that person an extra sandwich. Anyway. So, uh, loan sharks, you know, I lived in Bangladesh villages for quite some time, and um, I, I was surprised about a number of things. One is that the backlash from the religious leaders, the, uh, the men, because most loans go to women, the loan sharks, the people who, uh, who I thought, uh, who else, um, the, the middle class and wealthy who were consciously excluded from Grameen, and also I, I, that there wasn't the backlash that there were isolated cases, but very rare, was surprising to me. So I've, I don't even have a full answer, but it's, um, I also, also interesting case, although there's, there are pockets in the world where there's an issue of, you have loan officers in a very resource-deprived community where there is crime of various types and, and people uh, desperate for resources doing all sorts of things you do when you're desperate. But Grameen Bank loan officers, every week, they would, every day, they would travel a predictable route. And everyone in the village knew that they would go without money, but when they came back, they would come back with the payments of the loan of the borrowers. And sizable sums for a Bangladesh village. Almost never were they mugged. And even if they were, the money was always returned. The village rallied and said, oh, we know who did it. We'll, we'll go get them. <laughs> so I don't want to make light, because there have been a few isolated cases in other countries where loan officers have been mugged and killed. But the, the rarity of all these things has struck me. I, and I don't have a real theory about that. Maybe we're at the verge of the, of the backlash. Um, we expected a backlash from the religious leaders in Banda Aceh, um, in, uh, who, uh, when we started after the tsunami coming in with microloans, they said, listen, you're, you're charging 2% per month. The loan sharks charge 5% per month. That sounds to me pretty Islamic. Right? Uh, even though one reading of the Quran, and for that matter, all of the great religious books, one reading of it is that charging interest period is, is forbidden. And that more, uh, I think a more logical interpretation is that usury is, 
is, is not allowed. And this is, he was looking at it this week, as I mentioned. But what I, what I noticed in, in the villages I was in is that the people who were money lending, that, that, first of all, that wasn't the only thing they did. That was just part of how they deployed their, their capital, was being responsive to opportunities to, to lend uh, and uh, uh, to family members, often at low or no interest, and to outsider people in the family. And I think when that started to dry up, uh, and it kind of came, came to them quickly, they didn't really see the full implications of Grameen, because they thought Grameen, like many NGOs, which in Grameen's start office one would, you know, start lending a little bit and then collapse and withdraw and would be gone. But Grameen had a staying power and built the whole industry, but people didn't expect that. And, and what they said is, well, our money, we can't deploy it there anymore. I think many of them also had some sort of ethical problems with this themselves. Um, I, I don't want to read too much into some disjointed conversations, but people saw that there weren't, weren't the demand for that, so they would put their money into bringing more of their land under cultivation or invested in other areas. It's just one investment area. Uh, they had a monopoly position, uh, and suddenly the monopoly was broken, and it was, it was uh, better to put the money in other, other, uh, in other ways. Um, and, and you know, people saw the benefits of the community. In one village I lived in for an extended period, they said, well, used to be that you couldn't get rickshaw service. It was five miles to really the next, first real town uh, in this area. And it used to, he said, there, no one had enough money to buy a rickshaw to give the service. Now you have it. That's, that's convenient. Uh, that, I, you know, I don't have to buy a motorcycle. Um, and rich person might have had the money to do it, but they'd rather have the rickshaw service. So they saw the, the commerce benefiting them and the energi energizing of the economy. So I don't want to say those, those conflicts don't happen, but to my mind, they're surprisingly rare. Uh, and I think it's, uh, and again, I think the causes are complex, but I've tried to suggest a couple. So please. Um, I do. Uh, I, I, in fact, this is why many international banks, uh, initially Citigroup, have, have put together have put together um, business groups. So they've maybe long had a group in their corporate foundation focused on microfinance. So it seems like people uh, are, uh, some of the major international banks and also major local banks, like ICICI Bank in India, uh, see this as a long-term play to, to serve the bottom of the pyramid. And they think that it, there is money to be made there. Uh, now, how quickly and what strategies? Uh, then it, things, uh, how much money, how soon? And is it through banks displacing microfinance institutions or absorbing them or partnering with them? Um, but uh, those are some of the key questions. But I think that I think there is there is money to be made. Now there are issues. Um, one of, one of the things that we're most concerned about, you know, MFIs in India, microfinance institutions, have for a long time been been borrowing um, at between nine and twelve percent. So that's their initial cost before they've had any of their operating costs put in. Uh, and they tend to lend it between 20 and 30%. So, but their cost of capital can be as much as 12, even 13%. So that's, that's an opportunity. If you can have a 13% return on capital uh, and where the loans are, where there have, have really been no defaults um, from MFIs to their lenders. But the issue, the issue then becomes the, is that there's no uh, that these, this is all done in Indian rupees. So if you're willing to, if you're willing to 
to aggregate your profits in local currency, I think there are a lot of money to be made. And Dr. Yunus, his argument is, don't lose money, but make your money after people get out of poverty. Do your business with them uh, and profit maximize. Right now, the idea, the idea is put your money into microfinance in a way that's business-like and you can take it out at any time, preserve your capital, but what you want to do is provide it at the lowest cost that you can do sustainably to the poor um, and so that they share in the max, so that the, the value chain, the first priority goes to the poor. And when they're non-poor, then you can kind of realign it. That's, that's his philosophy and one that in many ways makes enormous sense to me. But people don't have to approach microfinance with the same philosophy or approach. But I do think there are issues with all of these dollar, these hard currency funds that are out there uh, that are trying to earn a 9% return in dollars or euros. Um, that uh, that is, is problematic from a number of respects. But the one that I'm most focused on is that if you get a lot of microfinance institutions who are who their assets, meaning the loans they have to the poor, are in rupees or um, or Kenyan shillings, but their liabilities are in dollars or euros. You could have uh, you could have if there were major currency fluctuations like there were in 1997. You could have MFIs through no fault of their borrowers or ability to repay go under. Um, and so so if if you're going to be taking that kind of a risk to get capital. And to, earn, and to earn returns for whether it's Tufts University or Citigroup or whatever, if, if you're not, if you're, if you're ultimately taking risks where the biggest risk uh, is being borne by the poor and, and that they'll lose access if there's a major currency fluctuations, that's where we get uncomfortable and that's why our strategy at Grameen Foundation um, has been through a, a guarantee program that we launched and that was actually mentioned in the current issue of the New Yorker. Um, trying to link up MFIs with local capital markets. We think that there is profit to be made. It can be shared various places along the value chain, including at the, the wholesale lenders, the banks. Um, we would like to see, while, the, while people are still poor, the most value being created at the level of the borrower. But again, you don't need to share that vision to make money and to be an, a player in this. But it does get tricky when you're talking about multiple currencies. And it's an expensive hedging costs that are uh, make the deals unaffordable. So please, and then. How risky are these loans? You're far, you're lending out like a thousand dollars or a hundred dollars to a woman in a village. Yeah. Like, does that get repaid often? Yeah, I mean the the typical loan loss rate in a microfinance institution that uses what we would commonly refer to as sound practices, best practices, is somewhere between one and two percent. Uh, and in a case of a disaster, an economic turndown, that might go to three to four percent. Uh, these are uncollateralized loans to women below the poverty line or close to the poverty line. So how does that, and what's interesting is the, the, the philosophy, or you might say the, the, the methodological breakthrough, was that for the first few loans, in particular, rather than getting into an enormous business plan analysis where, uh, where you look at, you know, this, where educated people from the city are trying to figure out whether this woman should be borrowing $40 or $80 for goat raising or chicken raising, that is delegated to the, the, the peer group or solidarity group in most models. So you're tapping local knowledge about who can invest in what successfully at what level. There are caps and there are, um, there are limitations. But within that, they have a lot of discretion. And, um, and, and ultimately, what you're doing is you're saying the, the philosophy we call it sometimes borrower knows best. Again, 
the caveat that she needs to get the approval of her peers in her solidarity group. So you're starting where people are, with the businesses that they feel comfortable with. May not be the most efficient deployment of capital, but it's the one that she is confident she can do as a way to get started. And then over time, you can pitch new ideas. She may have new ideas, but start where people are. Now, when businesses grow and the capital increases, you often need to come to a more traditional credit analysis approach, um, which isn't only linked to solidarity group vetting and so forth. But, at that, but also, at that point, people start to often accumulate savings where they have effectively have collateral, that if their, businesses, if their business gets in trouble, they can actually service the loan from other assets they've accumulated um, as, they've, as, as they've gone through the process. Um, so, um, well, anyway, um, please. So you talked about the need or opportunity to use the infrastructure of market plans and platforms to address other social issues. And I'm wondering if there are any other organizations or governments or institutions that you're in conversation with that partnering? So the question is, uh, in this idea of doing a, having a microfinance as a platform where you can bring other um, business and empowerment approaches through that infrastructure, who would be, we be looking to partner with? Uh, let me give a couple of ex actual examples of who has been partnered with, particularly in the Bangladesh, where I think this concept of a platform has is, is been most uh, advanced. Um, the, well, one case where it, wasn't, it didn't require a... Uh, um, a partner, well, let me start with one that did, Grameen Telecom. Some of you may have heard of this program to use cell phones uh, to set up women with uh, now 200,000 plus bo uh, Grameen borrowers in a business where they're a payphone, but it's a cellular payphone. So people come and place calls, receive calls, uh, like we used to do in this country before we all had cell phones. And that was a joint venture with Telenor, with the uh, big tele, the, the AT&T of Norway. And it was one, done initially, interestingly, and there's a for-profit company, Grameen Phone, and a non-profit, Grameen Telecom, and I won't get into the whole structure. But it's, it was done initially by Telenor as a kind of like quasi-charitable experiment PR thing. It's now their most, one of their top two most profitable franchises anywhere in the world. It's made money for the poor woman, for the local company, all the shareholders, the Japanese shareholders, the U.S. shareholders, and Telenor. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's its own very um, uh, elaborate st study, which is their case studies being written right now about it that are coming out. And I won't go into that unless there's deep interest. But, but so Telenor, in, in one case. Dr. Yunus is just one of the things he's using his, his um, um, and again, Deploying those phones, collecting the bill payments, all of those things, um, showing people how to use the phones, which didn't turn out to be that complicated. Um, all those things, fixing the phones when they went bad, to utilize the Grameen infrastructure, which was already in place, you were able to do it much more efficiently than if you had to invent that. Um, Grameen is, Dr. Yunus has said that he'll use part of his $1.4 million prize from the Nobel Committee to go into a joint venture with the Danone Group. The, does Dan and Yogurt in this country, among other things. And that is going to be focused on developing, empowering people to develop low-cost, um, high-nutrition yogurt, and then also to, 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 so the poor are both producers of it and consumers of it. Um, and that's where, again, there's a high-profile international partner. 
there are a few cases where you don't need partners so much as you just need to borrow some expertise and have some advisors and allies. And let me give you a couple other examples of what I, using the platform. When President Clinton went to Bangladesh in 98 or 99, um, Grameen was just starting a little solar energy pilot project. Didn't, I don't even think they had a company incorporated yet. Maybe it was just incorporated. And you know, I guess it must be fun to be president. You, know, you go to a country and you see a, someone you met, Dr. Yunus, and you visit his program and you say, well, here's $4 million. Do, do something good with it. Um, and then I guess you go on to the next place and you do that. That's, that's kind of nice. So Dr. Yunus said, well, I want to put this into uh, this solar energy program. And we have a dream that this program will one day, uh, we'll be putting out 100 solar home systems a month. Um, which, again, as, as in a business-like way where we're extending the loan to people to buy the solar panels and allows children to, uh, you, children to study at night and it allows you to get away from uh, possibly burning fuel um, in the home, which creates air pollution, indoor air pollution, all these things you can imagine, uh, global warming implications. Well, with that seed, and in the last about uh, seven years, Grameen Shakti, or Grameen Energy, has become one of the, according to friends of mine who work in this industry, one of the three most successful re renewable energy programs anywhere in the third world. Not related to microfinance, just period. Based on $4 million is, at the end of the day, not re serious money. So how did it do, and it, by the way, it, it long ago surpassed 100 solar home systems installed per month, um, and, it, and in a recent month it reached 3,000. And by the end of this year, there'll be 100,000 solar home systems installed in Bangladesh by Grameen Shakti, and it's making a profit doing so, even though it's incorporated as a nonprofit. So, um, uh, so there, again, the technology was available. They recruited some engineers. They got some advisors. Uh, and I, I suspect that without having the, the infrastructure and the brand awareness and the trust of Grameen onto what it otherwise was just a kind of a generic solar energy and now biogas is a, the new thing for Grameen Shakti, that would not be one of the top three. It wouldn't be approaching 100,000 solar home systems installed and do it profitably. The last, uh, last one I'll mention in, in terms of the, the platform um, is... Um, is around uh, health. Uh, the people involved, again, this didn't have an international partner, but it could have. Uh, and in fact, there's now, Dr. Innes is putting part, the other part of his Nobel money into creating an eye hospital, which I think has an international partner from Japan. And I, again, I actually don't know all the details. Things are happening so fast. But some years ago, a friend of mine who's worked with Dr. Innes in 79 set up, uh, set up a number of health clinics, and now there are 30. Uh, on a health insurance model. Again, piggybacking on 30 of their branches, you put a health center right next to it, Grameen Health, Grameen Shasta Kendro, um, Grameen Health Center. And, and it was modeled that it failed everywhere. My wife, who's a public health professional working on international development, said, well, unless they can pull something out of the hat, uh, this won't work. Poor don't want to pay for, poor, I mean, like many of us, if we had to pay it ourselves, poor don't want to pay uh, health premiums because they say, why do you want me to pay? I'm not sick yet. So, but of course, that's the whole basis of, um, of health insurance. And so they started this. They said, well, the poor, you don't have to pay it out of your pockets. We'll just deduct it from your savings account. And well, you won't even feel it. And they said, oh, that's okay. So again, by having the linkage with the bank, the trust of the bank that they weren't going to take more out of their savings account than they were supposed to, 
Um, and despite many, many challenges, these health clinics, uh, which when you're serving the poor, to, if you recover 30 or 40 percent of your costs, that's the big deal in international health. Uh, they're now, this year, they'll probably recover 94 to 95 percent of the costs of providing these services, these 30 health centers. And Dr. Yunus, and they're so excited because Dr. Yunus said, when you get to 100 percent, we'll finance one health center for every branch, and the remedy now is about 1,700 branches. So now you're talking about a whole health infrastructure done as a business, again, would, would be not be able to be done profitably um, or even without a huge financial loss without piggybacking on the infrastructure um, of, um, uh, of the Grameen Bank, which is the core kind of mothership. Um, there, there, are, there are a couple other things where there are, where there are partners, um, and there's a, a number of things to just go into financial services where... Um, uh, where AIG, for example, is partnering with some of our Indian groups that we work with. They're the kind of next generation of Grameen, where they're providing insurance products with the MFI being, a, uh, uh, being an agent, effectively. And uh, the MFI, in some cases, are getting a percentage of the premium. In other cases, it's just a free service, but it's helping to mitigate the risk of default of the loan. So there are different models. Um, but anyway, I could, I could even go on more, but I, I won't. Please. Well, uh, it's a good question. We've, I mean, Grameen Foundation, we've been very outspoken on this, maybe, uh, and so I'll, full disclosure, that not everyone agrees with the position I'm going to explain. Our feeling is, to go a little bit more than I did before, that 10 years ago, at the, at the urging of some very smart people in the World Bank, and, and uh, especially, so that we need to get very, very rigorous around financial metrics for success. Because as, as one of my colleagues uh, kind of jokingly said, uh, kind of asked and answered a question once, she said, um, she said how, how, does, how do MFIs determine their repayment rate? And her answer was, however it takes to get to 98% is the rate. And, and it was, she was only half joking, right? We, we didn't have standards for saying what, what it really means, your loan portfolio, the quality. But, through an industry approach, we developed a common ways of thinking about that. Um, and like any new approach to developing standards and benchmarks, the people that end up in the top half are very excited. The people in the bottom half challenge the whole uh, process. So, but that just takes an industry. So we are, what we've said, we've been mischaracterized as saying that the, bringing that financial discipline and rigor was somehow misguided. We've never said that. We've said to do that, but on the social side of microfinance to then have that same sort of huge fudge factor and no transparency and accountability, that creates a big distortion, huge distortion. And as, as many people say in many fields, you, you measure what you value and you value what you measure. So if you're looking at the financial performance of institutions providing microcredit, but you're not looking at the social and economic performance of the borrowers, that's a big distortion. So what we've tried to do, some allies of ours, uh, a group called Results, which is an advocacy group on, on microfinance and many other poverty issues, uh, and I probably have chapters uh, here in this area, a uh, grassroots group. They got passed through the US Congress uh, that any money that went out in microfinance from USAID had to track, um, organizations had to use certified social metric tools on both the, the depth of poverty of those who are being benefiting so you have transparency around that, 
And the implication is also so you can look at what's happening to people's lives as they go through the program. Very controversial. Many, many people in our field opposed it on all sorts of grounds. Um, what we did, uh, we were one of two groups to actually develop a tool and submit it for certification in, in September. Uh, and uh, we took, we did a modified version of something Dr. Yunus um, developed in which our tool to be meaningful needs to be adapted at the country level. So we've now adapted in six countries and we're going to be bringing it to 10 or 15 more in the next year. Um, but, but to stick with a simple, um, and what we're trying to do also is push for not just our tool, but because our tool we think is very strong and only one other tool was submitted to USAID, but what we're trying to promote is transparency and accountability and, that, and common standards and benchmarks for this. And again, you may have a different benchmark for people coming out of poverty in the southern Philippines, which is much more poverty stricken than the north. There may be different thresholds, and, it, and you need to look at it in the context of the financial performance. But you need full information, and we're a long way from that right now. And there are gonna be, there's a lot of disillusionment um, of, of people looking into this, wanting financial returns, but also social returns. And we really don't have a lot to say as a field about the social returns, except, except uh, at the institutional level. What we do know is there have been about 100 credible studies, impact studies of microfinance. And we uh, summarize these in this report, which you can get free from our website, uh, measuring the impact of microfinance, taking stock of what we know. But what it says about any individual institution, whether they're having an impact or not, and how that's changing over time, people don't know. These studies typically are published and peer-reviewed and, and uh, come out about six years after the data was collected. So it's not really helpful to man MFI managers or investors. It's helpful to MFI historians, I guess. Um, which maybe I'll be after I turn 40 or something. I don't know. But, but, the, but it does give you a sense that microfinance, when done right, the, the overwhelming evidence is that it works. But is it working in any one institution? Is it working in this half of the country better than that? We don't know. So we've developed this tool called the uh, Progress Out of Poverty Index. We've localized it in six markets. It's available free on the web. Any MFI can download it in those markets or, in fact, in fact anywhere. But I'll just give you one. It's an adaptation of what Dr. Yunus developed in Bangladesh. And it's here. It's a 10-point scale. He said, you know what? I want to know whether the poor are out of poverty. And said, there's some, you know, people said, well, you need researchers to come in and calculate this and calculate that. And he said, well, I think there's some probably easier ways to know. There's some things just like, you know, imagine when, when you all... Um, assuming you all are, are students here, when you graduate and get your first job, there are some common things probably a lot of you are going to buy that you didn't buy when you were here and you weren't earning money. Um, and you, know, you earn that first X thousand dollars. You become a multi-thousandaire. <laughs> there, there are a lot of differences, but there are certain commonalities. A car, a car of a certain, um, you know, not a clunker necessarily. You're, you'll buy that. So, Dr. Yunus said, figure, let's think about how, what people start doing once they're, they're just over the poverty line. One example in Bangladesh, it's interesting. Uh, anyone here from Bangladesh or been uh, visited Bangladesh? No? Well, anyways, subcontinent, um, or if you're from the subcontinent, you know that there's a brief, about six-week winter. Not really that cold. Certainly not for us. But, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you're sl sleeping outside, you don't have a, you're not in an in a, in a enclosed fully enclosed place, you'd like to have some winter clothing. But if you're, really, if you're poor, you're not going to invest in winter clothing for all members of the family. It's too big an expense for just a short winter that isn't that cold most years. 
Well, what Dr. Yunus realized is when people get above the poverty line, they tend to buy winter. That's, that's an expense that now they want to put in. That, that's, a, that's a suffering, minor though it is in some ways, that they want to take their family out of. So, and it's a very simple thing. All members of the family have winter clothing. So a loan officer who's doing this checklist and doing a census about where people are, you just open up the thing. There, people don't have that many clothes, even people over the poverty line. And you just look, are there winter clothing? Yes, there are. Check it off. So this becomes, a, and, and when all 10 things of this list are checked off, Dr. Yunus says, we're confident that it's a non-poor family. If even one is, we'll put them in the probably still poor. And he's been tracking since 19... This is, I guess, the one moment where I wish I had a PowerPoint, uh, which I'm totally sick of. I don't know about you guys, but uh, I, just, I just try to... <laughs> but this is, uh, this is the line dating from 97 when they started collecting this data. And you can see, maybe, uh, that it's going in the right direction. Um, and, um, which, uh, and I think it understates the number of people. Now, does it go to all the questions of causality? Is some of this because of the economic growth of Bangladesh? Probably. Uh, let the researchers figure that out and the historians. We, we've calibrated them because of the US legislation to whether people are um, of, of the international poverty line, which broadly stated is under a dollar a day per capita. So yeah, th this tool will tell you, as it was required under the law passed by Congress, what percentage of the people at entry and really at any point are under a dollar a day, adjusted for purchasing power parity, or between one and two dollars a day, which we call moderate poverty, or above two dollars a day, which we call roughly out of poverty. Um, so it is calibrated to, Dr. Yunus's tool, because that wasn't what he was asking, doesn't do that. Um, but this, the tool that we've localized that was originally developed in Bosnia, of all places, um, is calibrated, it can be calibrated if you have a living standards measurement survey data in that country, which most countries you do, you can take that tool and localize it, and it can actually meaningful tell you uh, the probability of a family at a certain score being in extreme poverty, moderate poverty, or out of poverty, which is roughly corresponding to $1 a day, $2 a day, or above. And the, the Millennium Development Goal number one, is you, you sounds like you're aware, but others may not be, is to cut the number of people under $1 a day, or extreme poverty, by half by 2015 half of the number that was as of 1990. So, yeah. Okay. I have a question about your thoughts on the future of the microfinance industry, specifically the short term in light of Dr. Yunus winning the Nobel Prize and the recognition that will bring in the long term. What's the industry of like 10, 20 years, the impact it will have on the world and development? Question is the future, what, what do we see in light of the Nobel Prize, the future of the microfinance industry, what will look like in 5, 10, or 20 years? Um, I think that in the immediate term, I think the, the interest in the field um, and people figuring out how to support it, how to piggyback on it, uh, studying it, researching it, all the things that we've been trying to push for people and institutions to do will, will at least for a time, come easier. Uh, the other thing that will come easier, uh, it will be a new generation of PhD students uh, who are going to be studying uh, trying to, through their thesis, debunk the microfinance um, myth um, that it actually works. And so there'll be new scrutiny, new, new support, and new scrutiny. Um, and, and really, ultimately, I, I welcome both. Um, I, in terms of some of the more medium-term trends, I think that it's a, in a lot of markets, it's a, um, 
If you go to the relatively saturated markets, Bolivia, Southern India, Bangladesh, a couple of Central American countries, you're going to see increasing competition, uh, dropping interest rates, mergers and acquisitions, MFIs failing uh, because they can't keep up. Uh, you're going to see a, a significant impact of technology, uh, particularly if our Grameen Technology Center, which is based in Seattle, uh, some of its um, products play out like we hope that they will, and others getting involved in the technology space. Um, and, and I think you'll also see some, in, in those markets, some, uh, some uh, political backlash, populist politicians saying, I'm going to save you, I'm going to turn the screws on MFIs um, who are charging you too high rates, and we want to get you subsidized rates, interest-free loans, and we'll do it through the political process. Uh, as it just happened in southern India. Uh, and in those markets, you'll see uh, some over-indebtedness of clients who are borrowing from multiple institutions. That's why we are trying to bring a credit bureau concept to piloting in Morocco, where MFIs can see clients through some sort of national ID number. Um, uh, if, you, if you have that in a country, is a family already borrowing from two or three MFIs? And if they are, they can factor that into their decisions. The poor are, are not always willing to disclose that for, for obvious reasons. So in the less saturated markets, um, uh, I think that there's a, there's a big opportunity for, for growth. And that's a lot of Africa, northern India, China, just to take a, a few, Brazil. And how that plays out, is that going to be mainly for-profit actors or non-profit actors, international institutions coming in, um, or an indigenous movement growing up? I think those, those um, um, but you'll see, you'll see them starting to catch up. I mean, just to give you a sense, you, 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 you think sometimes you read the literature that the, that the center of the microfinance world is Latin America, because in a certain few narrow ways, they have provided leadership. The entire microfinance sector in Latin America is half of the size of Grameen Bank, of all countries in the region. And I include Brazil in that. So it's, it's fairly limited outreach, except for a couple, uh, a couple of countries in, in there. So there's enormous untapped need uh, around the world, even as some countries are getting um, are, are, uh, are fairly well served, whereas a Bangladesh woman uh, you're more likely to be served by at least one in microfinance institution than you are not. Um, probably 80% of the poor women in Bangladesh are served by at least one. That's, that's incredible. I mean, that's like, it's almost getting to the point like where, I don't know where, if you've had this experience yet, where you, know, you get those four or five credit card applications in the mail every day, you know, and you said, you know, they're after my business. By the way, in this country, that can drop off very quickly with a bankruptcy or something. That can go from four or five a day to zero a year. Um, and... Uh, um, and until you're there, you don't really realize that you think that the banks are going to be after you to give you credit cards forever. It's, it's, there's, there's a surplus, and then it falls off significantly. The, um, the other thing, that the vision that we have is that there will be a continued role for specialized microfinance institutions, that they won't all be acquired by, um, overtaken by, put out of business by the banks. Um, we, because I think the banks with shareholders um, who are interested in short-term profits, I think there's probably no, um, there's not a likelihood in most cases that they're going to see the opportunity of microfinance as a broad, what I call a broad platform for social change. 
um, and because that's a long-term play. And uh, there'll be some exceptions. So I think what that role will be exactly, I don't know, maybe there is no role. And if there is none, then I think something will be lost. Or we'll, we may need to totally reinvent the microfinance movement from scratch, seeing whatever niche is left after the banks take, you know, because the banks, among other things, both, I think we'll miss the larger opportunity is to see this as a social empowerment platform. And also, they're going to start where the banking system left off and go slowly down. Whereas microfinance, we've always had a vision of it starts at the bottom and works its way up. Um, and those are, you know, those are different visions and different strategies and different values. Please. Thanks. Um, I'm working for a management center, so I'm going to ask career stuff. OK. Um, so I'm interested to know a little bit about your background, actually, and what roles. Basic question for the recording is about careers in microfinance. Uh, how do you get them? How did I get in? How did I wander into this field? Um, let me tell a little personal story, and I'll go. And I, I think we need to wrap up kind of at one-ish. Okay. Um, in terms of just uh, um, my story, I was you know on some liberal northeastern campus. Uh, uh, you might have heard of it, Cornell, um, and uh, and I was just. My own thing was I was kind of drifting into a, some sort of Wall Street thing, whatever, but I was, I was interested in all the social justice work, and I realized, though, that I didn't want to be against, I didn't want to fundamentally, if my life purpose, be against funding the wars in Central America, and I was against them, or against Cornell investing in companies that did business with South Africa, though I was against it. I wanted to be fundamentally for something, for something practical and, um, and tangible and positive, and so that led me to microcredit. I got a Fulbright scholarship to go to Bangladesh. I taught myself reasonable, passable, almost passable Bengali before I got there. That allowed me to get with the, the things quicker. Um, and um, um, so, and then that just one year led to six, led to Grameen Foundation. A lot of risk taking um, on the part of people who were with me and myself and God knows my wife. The, uh, in terms of what we look for uh, in this field, and I'll kind of close with a story just because I really do feel we need people, we need you, is um, I first of all look for people with, yes, with finance backgrounds, people that are, um, people that have relevant language skills. Um, and even sometimes you, say, you, you can kind of say if someone even doesn't know the right language for where you might deploy them, that they've learned a second language or a third language shows that there's an affinity for languages. You can kind of... Um, and um, and I think that um, you know there is a there is a there is a role whether it's in an art, whether it's in fundraising or marketing on the U.S. side whether it's in programmatic work um, where uh, for just what for lack of a better term project management skills um, and and sometimes people that have spent three or four years in McKinsey or all sorts of other horrible places uh, where you, where we throw young people to learn how to work a million hours and um, uh, is, is people come out of that and then they want to um, uh, <clears throat> apply those skills um, as, as generalists with language with some language affinity and some ability to take risk and uh, and uh, 
and, uh, um, and live in uncomfortable environments. And one of the things we often do, we take some people just out of school, but uh, typically we've, we, we, we've had, a, in fact, one woman who's here and lives here in Oakland, um, uh, one colleague of mine, who was one of the top project managers for Amazon and just and ultimately didn't, uh, didn't, she did that for five, six years, but ultimately, when she was in college, she went to northern India and spent some time there and taught herself Hindi. Did, had a successful career at Amazon, did, but couldn't stay long enough that she could be financially independent. Probably if she'd stayed there five more years, she could have been. But she went in, she went to work for us in southern India for six months, so it was kind of her language skills didn't help her, unfortunately, um, much. But she got the love of it, and she ultimately came to work for us. And we, we do this with a lot of mid-career professionals. We pay their expenses, and, uh, and we not a professional fee. She tested it out to see if she wanted to make this her career. She could have go, she, she gone back to Amazon because she was that good. She decided to stay with us. Um, and so I think there's, there is a, a role for a kind of professional uh, kind of grooming, finishing, call it what you will, in, in uh, uh, in finance, management, consulting, technology fields, and then people to enter microfinance. Um, and I'll just end with a very short story because I do, I, I do feel this, uh, particularly as you read all the Nobel Prize, I think you'll, you may think that, uh, that microfinance, we've kind of figured it all out. And we've, we've kind of, we've got it, you know, so we've, all we need to do is just execute and grow and it's all on remote control or auto, on momentum. And it's really far from that. And I, the analogy I use to express this to people, because we, and we sometimes, when we're trying to make the case that the World Bank should increase what it's putting in from 1% to 2%, we kind of need to make it sound like we've got something pretty down solid. And on some level, we do. But I was reading an article in The New Yorker uh, some years ago, and it talked about a medical school professor who is, first day of classes, said to the new students, freshman students, said, said to them a very funny thing. Said, Half of what we're going to teach you in the next four years is wrong. We just don't know which half. <laughs> and, and so I, I read that, and I was kind of worried, because I'm having family members in hospitals, and uh, I was thinking what's going on. But you think about it. You think, if you think of that broadly enough, what way my friend, family member who's involved in, uh, in the health field said, well, think of it this way, Alex. We now treat cancer by poisoning people. That's the best we've been able to come up with. In 50 years, that's going to be seen as barbaric, right? But that's the best we know now. So in microfinance, I don't even think it's 50%. I think in terms of the products that we're offering the poor, I think we should, we'd be going more in, in the direction of figuring lines of credit rather than term loans. I mean, I could go on and on about how dissatisfied I am, and many of us are, uh, at least after we maybe have a have a drink and you know sitting down casually, um, but really when we think of how we're not serving the poor as well as we could and how we're passing on our inefficiencies to them, there's huge huge uh, areas for new talent, new ideas, people breaking in, uh, and and not necessarily the PR mediars who have billions to put in, but we we like that, <laughs> but it's people with ideas and energy uh, and uh, and want to make their mark. Um, on the microfinance field and, and bring the, the advances, in manage, particularly in management, in technology, and in financial engineering, to, to take those and adapt them into microfinance to serve the world's poor and poorest. Uh, that's where we need help. We need new ideas and fresh energy. And with that, I'll wish you a good afternoon.
You've been listening to a presentation from the Center for Social Innovation at Stanford. For additional practical and provocative ideas, check out the Center's award-winning publication, the Stanford Social Innovation Review, at www.ssireview.org. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. Our audio content is delivered by Limelight Networks, taking the cost and complexity out of Internet distribution on the web at limelightnetworks.com. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Rob Lepper. Our website editor was Joel Cherney. The series producer is Bernadette Clavier. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you'll be joining us next time for another presentation from the Center for Social Innovation. Thanks for listening. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.